0: Bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. I'm recording this on Father's Day, so a shout out to all the fathers out there listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Hope you're having a great day with your family maybe doing a bit of stuff in the outdoors with your kids, target practice, maybe some fishing. I know there's um, the free fishing weekend in different provinces across Canada. So uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. So Bill C-21, the gun control bill, has moved from the House, it passed its third reading and it's in the Senate now. It's been there for a few weeks and it's off to a bit of a rough start actually. The Public Safety Minister, uh, Mendicino, uh, has called on the Conservative Party to quote-unquote tell his senators, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party, to tell the senators to get down to work and described it, uh, passing Bill C-21 in the Senate, as a matter of public safety. Conservative Senator Don Platt is very outspoken about Bill C-21 and one of the news stories I read, uh, Senator Platt said somehow he, meaning Mendicino, expects that we are not supposed to give it a sober second reading and indeed some kind of a of a vetting. Senator Platt said he basically said, uh, Mendicino said, I've looked at the bill. I say it's good, so give it your rubber stamp and let's move on with things," Senator Plutt said. "Well, that's not how the Senate works. So, I, I saw a session where Senator Platt, um was actually very critical uh, when Mendicino was on the hot seat in front of the uh, in front of the Senate, basically like raking him over the coals for. His social media posts and and whatnot around telling the Senate to just hurry up and pass this. Um, Senator Platt said he plans to vote against Bill C-21 as it is currently written and will try to block it from passing. Uh, Senator Pamela Walden I also saw a session where she was speaking about the inadequacies of Bill C-21 in addressing violent crime in Canada committed with illegal firearms, mostly handguns, smuggled into the country illegally. So of uh, if I have this right, of the 89 Senators in the Canadian Senate, 60 of those have been appointed by um, Justin Trudeau himself now so you'd think that doesn't bode well that that's going to be 60 against um the remaining senators well i've also gone through the senate's uh web page on the federal government's um, website looking at the history of the bills that have come before the senate And not all of them just get blanket approved. A tremendous amount of the most recent bills that I've seen have been rejected by the Senate as well. So there may be some hope for Bill C-21 as some rational, uh, well-thinking senators who are not necessarily caught up in the politics of re-election and the scrums and stuff that go on between the various parties. So, um... I'll keep you up to date on that, but I do have some hope that maybe we're at a point now in this country where the Senate is going to, you know, have a good common sense discussion and debate about Bill C-21 and its inadequacies of dealing with violent crime committed with firearms in this country. So last episode I talked about this controversy in Ontario over the time frame for public comments on a proposal of the government to uh, extend the licensing period and allow for transfers of licensed dog hunting trial enclosures in the province of Ontario. So this is the enclosures where on private land, they got these, you know, large 200-plus acre um, fenced-in areas where they live capture coyotes, foxes, and and hares. They turn them loose in there, and then they allow the dogs to hunt and search for them. Uh, their competitions, they get awarded, you know, points and medals and, and ribbons and all that kind of stuff uh, as part of what they do as a quote-unquote sport. So, um... That topic is still in the news, uh, quite a bit in Ontario. Um, animal rights groups are publishing articles in the paper, uh, asking people to write the government and and basically uh, kill this proposal, so to speak. Now, I read uh, a story recently where two former ontario conservation officers uh, were interviewed over this Uh, so this is this is kind of interesting so these former conservation officers are actually telling the province to reverse this plan on license expanding the number of licenses for dog trialing facilities and allowing them to be transferred um, to reverse that in fact they're actually calling for the practice to be banned altogether The two COs said that this is a cruel um, um, endeavor and the captive prey uh, and the regulations that are around um, regulating this practice on private land, the conservation officers said, are almost impossible to enforce. Uh, Part of the story I read was they can go to a private facility to do an inspection, um, but they might not even find the coyotes on are in this this large private uh, capture facility. They can look at the log books um, that have to log when coyotes were brought in, um, how many are still like you know alive or living in the compound, that sort of thing. Uh, but they basically said they can't verify that because it's like they can't go out into like 200 acres uh, with all these hidden burrows and different things that I was telling you about on the last episode that they have to have and verify what's in the enclosure and what's not. Uh, The COs did say coyotes have been hurt and killed by dogs in these training pens. And these two COs uh, that were interviewed for the article, uh, them and colleagues apparently a number of years ago um, undertook an undercover operation in Ontario. And they kind of infiltrated and went underground and found out that there was a coyote trade ring going on where animals uh, were being, coyotes were being caught illegally and then being stuffed into a barn, packed in there together and and then sold off um, for these, these pens. So I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, but what I'm seeing is, is there's like a, a legal route of obtaining coyotes from trappers, like live capture, then putting them into the pen system, logging them and having a record log that's required by uh, the licenses and then there's this illicit underground trade of live coyotes so they can be put in, hunted, killed, whatever um, and there's no record of them. Uh, so so they can, you know, be doing whatever with this, this sort of uh, ghost numbers of coyotes in these pen operations and they're not on the books so to speak so the culmination of this so the some from what I understand from reading this conservation officers undercover conservation officers went into this and they were going out with the people in this illegal operation and they were basically every night they were catching live coyotes and bringing them back to this one particular barn and, and stuffing them into the room one of the conservation officers that was involved in the undercover operation said the coyotes were piled up in the corner like on top of each other they were just terrified quote unquote at the culmination of this um, underground operation uh, the conservation officer seized seized nearly two dozen live coyotes and laid hundreds of charges apparently most of them were stayed because I think um, statute of limitations ran out on it and I don't know what, what or why that happened. So n- apparently no other Canadian province permits penned dog hunting, uh, which they were calling this in the story I, I was reading. Now when I wrote the last article I was you know mentioning that I couldn't get anybody uh, to come on the podcast and talk about this from the dog hunting community and i just sort of reached out to listeners if anybody kind of had experience or knew a little bit about this whole entire thing and yeah i heard from some folks now one listener from saskatchewan wrote in and said yes in saskatchewan they used to be able to hunt coyotes like outside the pens like out on the land actually hunting them and That's legal in Ontario as well. So you've got these pens where they train, supposedly train the dogs, but they're training them for competition, like I mentioned before, but also so that the dogs knew how to go out and actually hunt wild coyotes on the open landscape. So the listener said, Not completely um, sure of the current regulations, but knows that a tremendous amount of the regional districts in Saskatchewan have banned the hunting of coyotes uh, with dogs in parts of Saskatchewan. Now, the listener filled me in a little bit and said, um, to this person's knowledge, the way they are hunted out there on the land is packs of dogs chase the coyotes, um, extremely fast dogs chase the coyotes until the coyote is basically brought to exhaustion, and then they bay the coyote up. Then the hunters come in, and the hunters have a special dog, big um, and powerful, and they on un- they call it a kill dog. And then they unleash the kill dog to basically attack and kill the coyote that's exhausted and bayed up by the other dogs. So this is somebody that knows even more than I do about this whole entire practice of actually hunting with them so um yeah some concerning stuff starting to to kinda unfold a little bit about this whole whole practice thumb the underground coyote trading Um, and again I'll just put it out there uh, if people know a bit more about this um, let me know so so one of the things i want to make clear is is there was this information that i kind of covered from a news story i read about the undercover um underground black market coyote trading ring so it's basically synonymous with dog fighting you know but it's with wild coyotes so in anything in life including hunting there's this small segment of our community that's involved in illicit activities and this is probably an example of that i am certainly not going to paint the entire dog hunting community like this uh, but it is a component of it and law enforcement officers are saying there's just so many things mixed up in here being private land large um the illicit coyotes uh trade um and the fact that they've seen um, injured and killed coyotes from these dog pens. And the conservation officers who are generally hunters themselves and are supportive of hunting culture, um, that's their job is to, you know, enforce the the, the laws and, and build relationships with with good hunters out there and and uh, catch the bad guys, so to speak, so it's concerning when I see conservation officers talking about an aspect of hunting and they're they're and of course they're retired so they get to speak their mind <laughs> freely. Um, condemning an aspect of hunting. Um, I put a lot of weight on that actually. So I know a lot of conservation officers have a high, high level of respect for them and and what they see and, and do on a day to day basis. So anyways, uh if you know more about this story in Ontario or other jurisdictions, you know, where you live um again reach out to me on social media find me on instagram on uh the hunter conservationist on instagram or email us off the hunter hunter com website and and um fill me in uh a bit more i'm i'm learning a bit more um from news stories and from the folks that have reached out to me um but i still feel i just don't know a lot about uh this culture um but at the end of the day, uh, it sounds like, you know, actual hunting takes place on the landscape. Uh, I don't know to what extent. It sounds like, an you know, a very uh, inefficient kind of process to, you know, maybe track down a coyote. But, you know, I, I know dog hunters, uh, myself having the duck dog. Um, the love of hunting with the dog is the relationship between the person and the dog, not necessarily the hunt itself. The dog is the thing that's actually hunting. The person is kind of like, you know, um, partaking in the experience and sharing that with the dog. And, and that's a very, very special thing. But, um, man, when, when, like I said in the first episode, when the dog becomes the mechanism of death, like it's the gun here, um, yeah that's a that's a different story but then i said what about guys that use falcons to hunt ducks right like it's you know i've seen those videos and stuff looks kind of cool actually um but the falcon just grabs the duck and the duck's thrashing around like it's not an instantaneous duck uh, death it's usually the you know the 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 bird handler gets the falcon and the duck and then rings the duck's neck right so it's not like shooting it Uh, with a shotgun uh, but the falcon is the gun it's the mechanism of death so anyways that's that's the case um, that I uh, update anyways of what I've learned about what's going on in Ontario so I've talked about Canada geese in the urban areas a lot all over the country so there's one particular story in a small community in British Columbia Vernon Vernon BC Uh, I think I actually on a couple of episodes back on the Hunter Conservationist podcast where we had Holly Wise on, who is from Vernon. Uh, we were talking about her journey in trapping and becoming a certified trapping instructor. Hopefully you've listened to that one. She was familiar with, you know, the urban wildlife uh, programs in Vernon as a trapper. That's something she also did was urban um, nuisance trapping as well. and. So we talked a little bit about the whole goose issue in the town of Vernon. So I think last year, City Council approved a kill to scare program. So they were going to go in and kill Canada geese in the parks in Vernon in hopes that killing birds would scare the other birds away from coming in and occupying park spaces in the town of Vernon. So apparently they moved forward with that uh, and put out a contract, a kill contract for someone to say, okay, deliver on this and nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody wanted to step in and kill the geese. So not that just any citizen could go, yeah, I'll do it. I mean, it's a contractor. You're going to have to have insurance and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So it's not like a group of hunters would have said like, heck yeah, we'll do it. Can we keep them and eat them? Uh, this would have been some kind of, you know, um, you know wildlife control uh, agency or whatever that met qualifications and insurance and training and all that kind of stuff, but nobody would touch it. So I, I would gather, and I've seen this with deer calls in communities near where I live, like there's a, there's a really passionate group of people in some of these communities that like they want to disrupt these these calls uh they want to go after the people i've even seen like biologists were you know near where i live that have um orchestrated uh the permits for a municipality to do a deer call and people have targeted the biologist's home uh, burnt their lawn that sort of stuff destroyed the traps that were being set so so it it, it can be a pretty dangerous <laughs> proposition for somebody to take on one of these kill contracts in a community that's split down, you know, the middle of kill, don't kill, uh, coexist, or or wildlife control. So, uh, anyways, um, people were complaining, didn't like the geese pooping on the lawn. The city said, yep, we're gonna kill the geese," and then nobody wants to do the dirty work. So they got to learn to live with goose poop in Vernon, I guess. So. <laughs> Um, I think they, I think the story I read they hired a contractor to clean up the goose poops, so that's their solution but uh city council and Vernon voted unanimously to end the goose killing uh program so now, in late April in the town of Vernon, a goose was found with an arrow in it um It was still alive it was taken to a rehabilitation center uh which the damage was too extensive. Picture I saw showed the arrow through the wings, so we're probably talking about tendons, broken bones in the wings, meaning it would never probably fly again. And the goose was was euthanized. I'll say this over and over and over again: uh, when it comes to wildlife living in communities, one of the consequences of this coexistence program of wildlife living in amongst humans, in humans' habitat, Uh, we're no different than any animal, we like to protect our habitat, that when you cross that threshold, of you know oh we love animals and we like to and we want to coexist with them to you cross the threshold to where now uh, significant people in the community are like get rid of these damn things they're eating my flowers they're shitting on my deck all this kind of stuff they want to get rid of them Mm -hmm. that is a critical threshold in my opinion from a conservation perspective and animal welfare perspective we have to keep animal human interactions below that because I've seen this time and time again when that threshold is crossed somebody in the community decides to take matters into their own hands and generally it's a crossbow bolt that's stuck in an animal somewhere in the non vitals. Deer it's usually in the side of the face in the neck, uh, in the top of the shoulder here this case it was a goose that was like in in the wing so any person that's not a hunter can go buy a crossbow, a Canadian tire, load it, and stick it out their patio door and quietly launch an arrow into an animal. And that, in my opinion, um, is mostly, I believe, this is my belief of when we see these stories, it's not hunters, it is vigilantes in the community that just want to kill things. In other places I've seen stories about like nail spike beds for bears, uh, poisons, you know, traps. We saw the thing with the bobcat last winter in Calgary that had a improperly set body-killing trap and it was caught on its paw so obviously it was improperly set on the ground and not anchored. So these sorts of things I think are a huge problem to keep <clears throat> to keep these animal-human conflicts below the threshold of tolerance. It's like a it's like a carrying capacity. It's a form of social carrying capacity. We love wildlife to a point, and when it's in our face too much, we we don't want to get rid of it is that we need to be managing these urban wildlife below those thresholds, coexisting, making sure that there's no attractants, you know, all of these sorts of things. Those are great programs. A lot of conservation groups are involved in attractant management, uh, that, those sorts of things in educating the community. But I do believe lethal removal needs to be more of a part of this in a lot of communities. Um, so that we don't cross this threshold where people that don't know what they're doing um, buy that crossbow, Canadian Tire or this local sports store or whatever and then stick an arrow in the side of an animal's face. So, that needs to stop. Uh, Generally hunters get blamed for it but I push back on it and say if it was a hunter they would probably know how to kill that thing um, very quickly. So, now Speaking of problem urban wildlife, lots been going on in Canada for the last year and a half with coyotes, um, coyote attacks. So this was from Central British Columbia in the the uh, city of Prince George, BC. So I guess a woman was in her gardening, in her garden, gardening, and a coyote came up behind her and bit her, and she was taken to hospital and treated for some injuries but um yeah like just you know i i picture this person gardening you know you're down you're bent over you're weeding you're planting you're doing whatever uh maybe your situational awareness is not you know uh at peak uh peak performance and coyote just quietly sneaks up and just goes what the heck is this and bites it and uh i didn't say where she got bit but um you know whatever kind of bit in the back end maybe bent over gardening or something like that but uh I, obviously you would have to be concentrating so much that you wouldn't notice a coyote kind of walk right up behind you uh and and get bit but so i haven't seen anything further on this in prince george uh, coyote wasn't caught and and euthanized as far as i know Uh, and nothing else has happened. This sort of seems to be a bit of a freak, a little accident. But again, it's another little data point in this growing trend across Canada of urban coyotes and, and attacks on people. Just thought I would fill you in a little bit on that one if you're keeping track of the urban coyote stories from across the country. Now, staying on the theme of animals and attacks, so earlier this spring um in the town of machosan just outside of victoria british columbia on vancouver island a rancher that has uh, domestic sheep had 40 lambs and three ewes killed so far this year first five months of this year killed by a cougar and they typically lose uh, sheep to bears in the springtime. This was prior to bears getting ramped up in the springtime and they had already lost 40 lambs. Conservation officers had confirmed that they had caught and killed six cougars in the Machosan area uh, this year already. The ranchers said they had not lost a ewe or a lamb to a predator um since 1995 other than um, they had one incident where a dog uh, killed one of their uh, one of their sheep they just said there were no predators there then no no cougars and um, so now they're dealing with the loss so of they they got I think like a huge flocks like thousands of um, uh, sheep and stuff it's you know but 40 lambs is 40 lambs that's that's a friggin lot of little sheep getting eaten up conservation officers were you know basically urging farmers and ranchers you know to employ all the best prevention problems so that's going to be like fencing electric wires um herd protection there's dogs there's donkeys there's llamas like all that kind of stuff the ranchers said they had an incident where a number of years ago where the bear actually killed a couple of the donkeys that that they that they had um, I don't know whether they were guard donkeys uh, or, or what, so it's a it's a tricky situation. Um, one of the stories I read on this said that a neighboring ranch next to the ones that lost these 40 lambs had a cougar killed one of their lambs in the middle of the day in plain sight of kids in the yard. Um, ran out and, and grabbed and killed you know, one of their sheep. So that kind of stuff gets uh, incredibly concerning. Um, conservation officers have said that their priority is public safety. Uh, that's their number one priority. And uh, public safety related to dangerous hunting or dangerous wildlife in urban and rural s- settings. That's their primary. So it's not their role um, to basically be on standby should a dangerous predator start to cause problems with livestock. They're not um, they're not brinks guards, so to speak, the conservation officer. so it's really up to the landowners and the ranch uh, owners and stuff to do everything possible to uh, protect their own livestock. At the end of the day, cougar is probably still going to get over a high fence. Uh, they can climb up over the uh, you know the wooden posts, so maybe metal posts is you know is a better scenario. Now, staying on the topic of cougars and human conflict, so not just a few weeks ago, a person riding a bicycle mountain bike on a trail in the Kelowna area of Central British Columbia was chased by a cougar that then lunged and swatted at her probably got some you know claw marks and stuff again taken to the hospital with non-threatening uh injuries but it sounded like it might not have been just a like like lunge swat and ran off uh like the cougar kind of thing because there were other people around that came to you know when this happened came to the bike riders uh, assistant and actually scared the cougar off so it's very possible um, had that mountain bike rider been alone and not had some others around that cougar might have stayed there and uh, killed the person now years ago there was a jogger and I'm just trying to remember if it was California Oregon or Washington that was attacked and killed by a cougar and one of the things that I read about the uh, like the incident report on that is the jogger was wearing white and was running on a trail. And the experts that investigated the, uh, the attack figured that the cougar saw that fast movement, the bouncing kind of up and down and the white flashing of being part of a deer, so like either the bum on a mule deer or the tail on a white tail, something like that, that then triggered that predatory instinct to chase and kill. Uh, and that seemed to be, if I recall properly, was like the, the sort of the, the primary factors that led to that cougar attack. So uh, I don't know if this was the case with the mountain bike, but what made me remember that is a person on a mountain bike would be traveling uh, quickly. And so if a cougar just caught the glimpse of something going by like that, and it instantaneously triggered that that chase and kill instinct that's in the brain of a predator, uh, that may have led to to triggering this response. So yeah, that's an interesting one, just the, because mountain biking and e-bikes now, right? Like, I mean, these things are clipping along and all of these, these secluded trails like rather quickly, and both for... Coyotes, uh, cougars, maybe bears. They say not to run from a bear because you can trigger that that same uh, chase kill mechanism in in the brain. Um, and it'd be interesting to know if uh, if the incidents are growing on these faster forms of locomotion in in outdoor recreation than people that are just uh, walking and inadvertently uh, bumping into uh, you know a predator in a You know, um you know come around the corner of a trail that sort of thing so anyways um uh, something i'll leave with you here uh whether it's cougars coyotes deer in an urban area that are protecting fawns that's a big issue in uh, a big risk now in communities uh, is the, the aggressive does protecting their fawns moose and their calves bears their cubs all this whole suite of animals at this time of the year that may may maybe either hunting or protecting offspring one of the best forms of protection defensive protection that you can carry with you in my opinion is bear spray Uh, the fact that it's been labeled bear spray might not click with some people but it is should be called a predator defense spray or something like that right i used to when i did forestry work i used to carry it in the winter time inside my jacket in a holster close to my armpit actually so that you know it stayed uh warm uh for moose and i'm just thinking if i ever got caught in a situation working in the winter time um where a moose was sort of like hey this is my willow patch and i want to like trample you to death at least I had some form of defense protection and I don't care whether it's a bison uh, a grizzly bear or a cougar I would probably pretty much say that if you deployed bear spray on anything that wanted at you you would have a pretty good chance of preventing that animal from contacting you so um yeah carry your bear spray advice on bear spray make sure that it hasn't expired so check that expiry date I've got like a few canisters that I've got to replace it's expensive but it's just a cost of staying alive and the advice that I got on carrying bear spray uh, in a bear defensive training program I took years ago is carry the largest canister that you can buy don't buy some kind of little thing that just fits in your pocket of your keychain, buy the great big extra magnum ones. Uh, Yep, they're a bit bigger to carry on your belt or whatever. Maybe a bit of an issue if you're a jogger or something like that, but carry the maximum amount of propellant that you could put out because your life might depend on it. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we'll see you in the next episode.